everybody. Welcome to a Tuesday edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Dan Lobby with Mary Kay Cabot. It is our Hey Mary Kay edition, our first off-season edition of the Hey Mary Kay podcast. We got all kinds of questions from our football insider subscribers, our texters. Uh, they want to talk about that game Sunday. They want to look a little bit ahead to the off-season as well. So we're going to get to uh, as many as we can. Like I always say, we can't get to all of them. We get too many, but... Uh, we're going to get to, to some of our favorites here and some of the ones. Hopefully, we'll touch on a lot of the ones that we don't get to as we go along. Uh, so, Mary Kay, let's start here. Let's talk about this defense. And I really liked this question from Ken in Durham, North Carolina, because I think it gets to a lot of different things uh, coming off of that performance. Hey, Mary Kay, Jim Schwartz's ethos is our defense does what it does. Come try to beat us. Every time they played a great offense in mind with excellent quarterback play, however, the defense got crushed. Does Jim Schwartz need to rethink his approach in certain situations, or do the players just need to execute better? You know what, Dan? I think it's a combination of the above. Uh, I just got done writing basically an analysis on how can you show up in Houston and, and afterwards, and even yesterday on Locker Cleanout Day, all we heard was, um, you know, we didn't show up. We did not show up. How do you not show up for that game? And it's not necessarily, I don't think that they didn't show up, but they didn't show up ready. They didn't show up correctly. They didn't show up uh, with the right game plan. And they certainly didn't show up ready to make the right adjustments for what Bob Slowick, their first year offensive coordinator and their rookie quarterback, CJ Stroud had in store for them. Uh, So I I think it's a combination of all of the above. Uh, But when I did this story, it, it really hit home for me, and I've been saying this all season long. They were not battle-tested by quarterbacks this year. They just were not. And this defense, you know, it was the number one defense and the number one pass defense heading into the playoffs. But they feasted on some of the more bottom-feeder type guys in the NFL. Uh, you know, those numbers include... Uh, you know, a season finale against Jake Browning instead of Joe Burrow. Those numbers include uh, an opener against Joe Burrow when he was coming off of a calf injury. Clayton Toon, again, uh, instead of Kyler Murray uh, versus the Cardinals. Trevor Simeon instead of Aaron Rodgers. Uh, You know, they just did not play that many really good top-notch quarterbacks this season. And when they did run into the really, really smart and savvy play callers and the experienced, excellent or premier quarterbacks, they struggled. And people keep wanting to say, well, why did they, you know, why did they lose on the road and they win at home? I think it had a lot to do with the quarterbacks that they were facing in those situations. I think they played better quarterbacks on the road for the most part. Um, So, you know, I, I definitely think that that had something to do with it. But there were so many things that that went wrong in this game, and they didn't adjust well to them. One of the things, and what we will break it down even further, but one of the things that they did curiously was they played more zone coverage than they than they typically had this season. And C.J. Stroud struggles against man coverage. We didn't get a chance to ask uh, Jim Schwartz why he didn't play more man coverage. Maybe it's because Denzel Ward was hurting and almost didn't play in this game. I I don't know. I don't know why they decided to go more zone, but uh, you know, maybe they were trying to change it up. And since they had just played the Texans on December 24th, maybe they wanted to mix it up and throw zone at them instead of man to man and have, have them on their heels and off guard a little bit, but that, that didn't work. And again, CJ is really, really good against zone not so good against man. Uh, so I think that was one of the places where they aired. Yeah. And it, you know, when you kind of go through the list and I really think of like the Rams game, right. With Sean McVay, who Sean McVay has had his way with Jim Schwartz defenses. And he's one of the most brilliant offensive minds in football. Um, and by the way, did a great job this year with that Rams team that a lot of people thought were going to be tanking for Caleb Williams, but that's another, we're not a Rams podcast. Um, but, you know, when you've had that combination, it did cause problems with Jim Schwartz. And, I mean, whatever the reason was, Bobby Slowick and C.J. Stroud just absolutely toyed with this defense. And I do want to I do want to note this, and we did mention this on our postgame pod, but just to, to kind of push this point home. Obviously, injuries were an issue this year, but these were the top, top snap getters on the defense on Saturday. J.O.K., 
Taki Taki, Juan Thornhill, Martin Emerson, Denzel Ward, Miles Garrett, Dalvin Tomlinson. Okay, then you get to DeAnthony Bell, but then it's Jordan Elliott, Greg Newsom, Shelby Harris, Zadarius Smith. All but one of those players, and that's DeAnthony Bell, is a regular starter. What, however you want to define starter, right? Like Greg Newsom is a Greg Newsom, Martin Emerson, however you want to define those guys. Those guys are, are starters. So it's not like it was just because they had a bunch of backups out there playing against this Texans defense. They had their guys. And you're right, Denzel Ward was banged up. But, you know, Greg Newsom's a former first round pick who's played a ton on the outside. So I, I just don't think there's any real excuses for what happened um, on Saturday. And I think it does reinforce the point you were making there. And, and the point I think our texter makes, like, there is a way to attack a Jim Schwartz defense. And we saw it whenever they played a really smart quarterback who was paired with a really smart play caller for the most part. Yes, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, you can just see it week after week after week in what we're talking about that, you know, again, when they when they ran into McVay and Stafford, when they ran into even Sean Payton and Russell Wilson, uh, you know, they they did struggle. And one of the things that C.J. Stroud said, now he said this to uh, Albert Breer of the Monday Morning Quarterback, it appears in his story today, where C.J. says, we knew they were not disciplined with their eyes. We knew they were not disciplined with their eyes. And when you look at a couple of the touchdowns, you can see that that was true. So what happened was on the 76-yard touchdown pass, the catch and run by Brevin Jordan, the tight end, what happens on that particular play is, and this is in the story that I have up now, and uh, Lance Reislin has some, he pulled a couple clips out of some of these things as well. You can see that JOK bites on the play fake. He gets caught on the play fake. So his eyes are not in the right place. He lets the tight end go, completely lets the tight end go. And CJ easily, smart quarterback, just easily lifts the ball right over uh, the head of, of two defenders there, you know, fi- finds an opening right there on the right side, short pass. And then after that, uh, you know, to compound that mistake, you've got, you know, the two guys on the sideline there in Martin Emerson and Ronnie Hickman that don't make the tackle. They just don't make the tackle. They they just let him go. And then uh, then he just outraces Oboe and to a lesser extent, Shelby Harris to the end zone for the 76 yarder. None of that stuff should have happened. I mean, none of that stuff should have happened. You know, first, somebody's got to um, you know, make sure that you're not, not biting on the play fake and that you're covering the tight end. And somebody's got to make up for it if you don't. And then somebody's got to make the tackle. And, you know, none of those things happen. So that was one. And then, you know, the, the next one after that, and that proved to be the game-winning touchdown. That was 17 to 14 in the second quarter. And it was all the points they would need. We didn't know it at the time, of course. Um, and then after that was another tight end, TD, a 37-yarder, to Dalton Schultz. And in this particular instance, they targeted rookie safety, Ronnie Hickman, who was pressed into service and has been into, pressed into service because of injuries to Juan Thornhill and Grant Delpit. Well, Grant didn't make it back for this game. So, you know, Ronnie had to be out there in, you know, the biggest moments of the game. And in this particular moment, he, you know, he got foiled by a, I think, five-year tight end. Uh, maybe six year, six year tight end in Dalton Schultz. And um, so what happened is that Dalton Schultz faked that he was going outside on a corner route and Ronnie bit that fake. He, he bit on that. And there's a tweet about this too in my story. So he bit on that and easily just turned and went clear across the field where by that time, Greg couldn't catch up to him. And it it almost seems like, oh, was that Greg's mistake? No, it was Ronnie's mistake over here. Ronnie let him go. He was going to be with him on the corners route. Now, again, this was a zone. um, So you don't want to completely pin it all on Ronnie there because, you know, there should have been time for somebody uh, to help recover and, and get to him before he goes clear across the field to catch the touchdown pass. Um, but unfortunately for them, that didn't happen. And Greg's fast. I mean, you know, Greg's fast, but he could not get there. Uh, so it was a couple mistakes there. And, um, and the, you know, by the time those two touchdown passes had been caught, it's 24 to 14 at the end of the first half and the game is over. 
right? Now we know in the second half that Joe Flacco in desperation to try to get back in the game made two bad decisions and it resulted in two pick sixes. And of course the game was over by that point, but the game was really technically almost over in the first half with those two touchdown passes. So it was a very challenging defensive performance. Uh, The other thing about it, and I have been saying this and writing this is they just didn't get the pressure up front. And I think that's kind of inexcusable in some ways. And once again, really, really good offensive game plan by Bobby Slowick, who also happens to be the son of former Browns defensive coordinator, Bob Slowick, who was here as the Browns defensive coordinator in 1999. And if I ran into Bobby, I'm not sure exactly how Bobby, old Bobby is right now, but I'm sure that, um, you know, he was probably a little boy running around at Brown's training camp in 1999. Uh, so it's kind of funny to think about it in that way. Um, but he probably has, you know, like a little extra something for the Browns having, I, I don't know, from an age standpoint, but uh, there is some kind of a connection there. Anyways, he did a phenomenal job in calling this game. And he also has a really good quarterback on his hands in C.J. Stroud, a really good quarterback. And you know what? He's seeing the field really well. He's seeing it. I mean, he's, if he sees that, you know, somebody is, is you know, out of position or is, is not going to have their eyes where they're supposed to be, he's going to make you pay for that. And he did. And it, it was quite the beatdown. Yeah, it, it was a really bad. I mean, there's no other way to spin it. It was a, a terrible performance from from a defense that, again, if you're gonna if you're gonna call yourself the best defense in the world and you're gonna come out with the boombox and all of that stuff, um, you you got to back it up. Um, and and they didn't do that. And by the way, with Ronnie Hickman again, it's you're, there's going to be a drop off right when you have an undrafted free agent in there, but. He's, he has started four games at this point, and all we've heard all year is that, you know, these guys are ready to step in and play when needed. He went to a big-time college program. It's not like he's from Kent State or something. He came out of Ohio State. He's played in big games. So, you know, I still think the expectation should be high for a guy like that, um, even though he didn't he didn't get drafted. I still – do you expect him to be Grant Delpit? No, of course not. That's not fair. You don't even expect him to be Juan Thornhill or, or somebody like that. But um, I still think – you know, if, if he makes a mistake, you, you don't just say, oh, undrafted free agent, don't worry about it. And not that I think they're doing that, but um, it, it, he's, he, he needs to be better in that situation. It's, it's January football. You've been in the league for almost a full year. You've got to be better. By the way, Mary Kay, Bob Slowick, um, I bet you could never guess where he is right now. He is in the Canadian oh, look at Football you. League uh, as a defensive coordinator or head coach oh. for the Calgary Stampeders. Well, unless Wikipedia hasn't been updated, he's just the linebackers coach. Okay, so he's... Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's like a Jared Mayo situation where he, <laughs> you know, is the linebackers coach, but he calls the defense. I don't know, but um, yeah, look at you. Okay, see, I, I underestimated. I should know better. <laughs> I, sh- I should know better than to us to underestimate your knowledge of where Bob Slowick is. Oh my God. How funny is that? That is, I mean, you know, the only reason why I know that Dan is because I looked it up when I was writing my story today. I was like, Hmm, where is old Bob Slowick right now? Because of course I covered him in 1999. Now help me out. How old is Bobby right now? Um, Bobby or Bob, which one? The young one, Bobby. Okay, I got to look that up because um, I can tell you Bob was born in 1954. Bobby is 36. Bobby is 36. So Bobby was like 12 or something like that when he lived here. I'm sure he, he either lived here or was here or he was around. So he was here probably, you know, out there catching punts in, in uh, training camp or running around uh, doing something. I don't know if he was or not, but uh, – you know, I think that's kind of interesting. He was a, probably like a 12 year old kid when his dad was here as the defensive coordinator. So he's got memories of the Cleveland Browns. You know, it's not like he was five years old. He he knew what was going on. Yeah, he was born in 1987. So uh, 36 years old. Um, Princeton, New Jersey. All these coaches coming from New Jersey all of a sudden. Um, that's That might become the new cradle of coaching. Um, that, that New Jersey, Philly area. Okay, let's move on here. Um, this was an interesting question from Megan in Dayton. It's a long one, but uh, bear with me here. Hey, Mary Kay, 
I always knew that this team team was down too many pieces, particularly on offense, to go to the promised land, but I got swept up in the talk of the intangible something special, in part because I've seen so many championship-winning teams supposedly, supposedly have that. But to lay such a spectacular egg when it mattered makes me question whether they ever even really had that specialness. What makes you think or not think that that intangible thing we thought they might have had will persist into next year, or was it all smoke and mirrors? That's a great question. It really I know. Is. It, was, it was long, but I thought it was a really good question. Good, thoughtful question. I really like this a lot. I think that special thing uh, that, that our texture is, is referencing here, I think that that's very real. I, I do. I think it is very real. And I think that, uh, you know, it's just a testament to that, that the Browns were able to go 11 and six, losing so many guys. Let's not forget that they were down to their fourth and fifth offensive tackles. They were down to their fourth quarterback. Although whenever we say that about the fourth quarterback, you know, we do have to remember that, you know, he was very, very experienced. It wasn't like they were trying to pull this off with PJ Walker. They were not trying to pull this off with PJ Walker. They were trying to do this with the player who has the most playoff road wins tied for the most playoff road wins in NFL history with Tom Brady. So, you know, this was not somebody that they just pulled in off the street trying to play some football. Um, But this was a special football team. They did have a special camaraderie. They knew how to stick together. They, They ran through a wall for each other. Everybody was about the team. And I think that will persist. I think that definitely will persist. But every single year, you do have a new vibe on the team. You have a new culture. You have new energy. And things are always different. I mean, you could bring in one or two guys and it changes up the dynamics of the football team. That's why these guys are so careful about who they bring onto the team. And, you know, if you have something kind of going in a certain way and you like the way that it is, you don't want to upset that apple cart, which is why, you know, maybe that's why they didn't want to bring in a DeAndre Hopkins or someone like that. Um, Because they're very protective of the culture that they are building. And I do think that it's a good one. And I think there is something special. And I actually do think that if just a couple things had happened differently in this game, that, you know, let's say that, I mean, just take those two mistakes out, okay? Let's just take those two mistakes out. Let's say JOK follows Brevin Jordan and keeps his eyes on Brevin Jordan and doesn't uh, start the insanity with that 76-yard catch and run. And they that doesn't happen. And then Ronnie Hickman doesn't bite, go with the fake and sticks with his man. And that doesn't happen, okay? If that's a tighter game coming out in the second half, let's say, okay, maybe it's 20 to 14 because the Browns were doing some good things. I mean, they were uh, exploiting the fact that the Texans were having a lot of difficulty covering tight ends of their own. I mean, they were having trouble covering David Njoku and Harrison Bryant. And now I do think that Amari Cooper was banged up in that game and we just don't even know the extent of it. I think we saw him get up slowly and he went to the sidelines, he came back in, but I don't think he was himself. So I think that was a factor in this game, that nobody's said it, nobody's really used it as an excuse, but I think there was something to that. Um, But the Browns were poised to hang in there. Those two mistakes that dropped them to 24 to 14 at the half, I think that caused Joe Flacco to press, to press in the third quarter. He got outside of himself and did the thing that he knew he couldn't do, okay? So you could go ahead and take a sack there on that first pick six. You can you could take the sack. Um, you know, that's a risk to let that ball go. So that, you know, that was an error in judgment. And then just a bad throw on the second one. And he was pressing. It was fourth and two. And he he pressed. But he was pressing because he was trying like heck to get the Browns back in the game after the defense had made these mistakes. So we're talking about two really bad first half mistakes and the game got away from them. The game got away from them. If they, if those two little things hadn't happened, those two small things that turned into huge things hadn't happened, they could have been right in the game and then anything can happen. Anything can happen in the second half if you don't completely let it get away from you with the takeaways 
and whatnot. So I think this still is a special team. I still think they have what it takes next year, but there's so much that has to happen. There's so much that has to happen for them to get back to the playoffs next year and be a really good football team in 2024. Yeah. And I think that's going to be the hardest thing to replicate because I do, I do think I'm with you. I think this team, and you know, I'm as cynical as anybody when it comes to this stuff, but I I think this team really was as close as they were telling us. And as like that bond, I really think they built that. And I think a lot of it had to do with the adversity they were going through. I think because of all the injuries and because like, I think a lot of that helped too. Like these guys just kind of came, decided to come together instead of pulling apart or kind of feeling sorry for themselves. So I think a lot of that stuff helped. And I think that might be the hardest thing to carry over because, you know, Kevin can kind of dip into his bag again, but like is going to the Greenbrier going to be as effective next year as it was this year? I don't know. Um, You know, Anthony Walker yesterday, I thought was really good about that trip to LA. Uh, He said, you know, they lost both those games, but that trip really helped them. And especially because they were kind of trying to ingratiate Joe Flacco, like, you know, him kind of being in L.A. and he went to he let, he like went out with the team, which um, Anthony said was something you don't always see a lot of a lot of older starting quarterbacks do like it's late. You know, are you really going to stay out at two in the morning? But Joe understood, like, I got to be there. You know, he's so a lot of that stuff really helped. But like, I, d- I don't know. Is that repeatable? Like, are the guys that are coming back, are they going to be as pumped up to go to the Greenbrier again? Is it going to have the same effect? I, I don't know. We'll see. And we obviously don't know for sure if they're going to the Greenbrier again. I'm just throwing that out there. But, you know, Kevin's got to come up with some new tricks, I think, to kind of keep that camaraderie growing and, and kind of make it carry over year to year. Well, you know what? And you're right about that. And I'll tell you what, and I think this is so vitally important that people need to understand this because I've seen it so many times over my career. Culture and camaraderie only go so far when you start losing. If you start losing and you have a four-game losing streak, it's human nature that people start to question things. They start to doubt things. They get disgruntled. And things tend to come apart at the seams a little bit. So that is when a team really needs to prove its mettle is when the adversity hits. Now, there was injury adversity this year, but they didn't have losing a bunch of games in a row adversity this year. For the most part, they were winning and they were on an upward trajectory, even though they're losing Deshaun Watson and Nick Chubb and Jack Conklin and, you know, Dewan Jones and Jed Wills. They were still winning football games for the most part. They never got to a point where it was like, okay, we're 10 games in and we're not going anywhere. We're not going to the playoffs. That is when we will find out if the team really truly has the kind of culture that they're looking for. And I think it does. I think it does. When you bring in guys like Rodney McLeod and, you know, you have guys like Anthony Walker and you've got, you know, the Juan Thornhills and and the guys that you add to the football team that want to run through a wall and love football, you know, you have a much better chance of having good culture and guys that, uh, you know, that can withstand adversity and all of a sudden you don't have things coming out of the woodwork that you didn't know were going to be there. If it's not in the woodwork, it's not going to come out of the woodwork. You know what I mean? If it's in the woodwork, it's going to come out. And they've really tried to put guys on the team that are just good to the core. Good guys, love football, and are going to weather the storms. So I I think that will continue. But I think next year is going to be tougher. I think next year is going to be tougher, even though they should have Deshaun back. They should have a lot of their guys back because they're playing the second place schedule. And as I mentioned in the story that I posted today, they have got a gauntlet. If these quarterbacks are healthy next year, they've got a gauntlet of quarterbacks they are going to have to play. And they have to get better if they're going to beat these excellent quarterbacks. And and you said something in there too, and we're, we're going to get to some offseason stuff here after we take a break. But um, so like a guy like Anthony Walker, a guy like Rodney McLeod, um, those guys were really important to like this, this team and the leadership on this team, even though they were hurt, they were still around. They were and last year, Anthony Walker too. You start to wonder how many of those guys you can kind of keep around, right? As this, cause this roster keeps getting expensive and, 
And like, you're going to hand the keys over to JOK here soon. He played every snap in that wild card game. And Jim Schwartz has said he wants JOK on the field for every snap. So now you're, you're kind of getting into a money pinch. You're getting into a playing time pinch and it starts to become like, okay, is there room for Anthony Walker now? Is there room for Rodney McLeod? So you either have to find new versions of those guys or you have to trust, okay, JOK is ready to take on a role like that or that there's someone in that locker room who's ready to take on that bigger leadership role and kind of slide into where maybe, you know, cause maybe Anthony Walker gets an opportunity to go someplace else that pays him more money. Maybe you do bring him back on another one year deal, but you are going to lose some of those guys. And you've got to count on some of these, these guys already in your locker room to kind of step up and take on that leadership mantle, which is hard because Anthony Walker is like an elite leader. <laughs> you know, Rodney McLeod isn't like a high level elite leadership type guy. And so you're going to have to count on some of these younger players who are stepping into bigger roles to also step into bigger leadership roles. Yes. And if you do lose guys like that, you have to replace them because that leadership, that strong, undeniable leadership is so vitally important to a football team. One place they might be able to get it next year is bring Jacoby back. I mean, you know, that's actually, I think in my mind, a possibility, Um, you know, bring Jacoby back. And then right there, you're getting amazing, amazing leadership and a really good backup quarterback who can step in and win games for you. It's like, you know, Joe might want to go somewhere where he can start. Maybe Jacoby's willing to come back here. Uh, so that's definitely something where, you know, you could replace one of those guys with the Jacoby Brissett, but you're right. They have to have guys like that. And, um, even if you have to go out and find somebody who is 30% football, 70% leadership out there in free agency or whatever, it's worth it. It's worth it. I remember asking Mike Singletary about those 85 Super Bowl winning bears and what was the difference. And he said, veteran leadership so vitally important and also when we get back after after the break when we talked defensively i think we also need to address uh, the whole miles garrett situation and kind of what went on with this football game okay well that's a good tease we're going to take a break and when we come back we'll get to some roster questions but first we'll talk about miles garrett And welcome back to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Hey, Mary Kay edition here on a Tuesday, our first off-season edition of the pod. All right, Mary Kay, so let's talk Miles Garrett. We did not get a Miles... We did not get a Miles Garrett-specific question, but that's okay. We could do whatever we want on this podcast. Um, So, Miles Garrett, look, he did not have a good game on, on Saturday. And I looked on PFF yesterday. He was credited with three pressures. He didn't get to the quarterback. Um, Laramie Tunsil when they were matched up, really had his way with him. And so it was a disappointing, you know, look in 2020, he had COVID. He was struggling. Um, wasn't at his best in those playoffs. There's not really an excuse here in these playoffs. This was a disappointing performance for Miles. Well, you know, what happens is, you know, teams are getting rid of the ball so quickly that it's very, very difficult to get to these quarterbacks. And when you do get to them, they step up, they slide away. They're very elusive. And it was no different with C.J. Stroud. It was hard to do all of that. And then you couple that with, as you mentioned, four-time Pro Bowl left tackle Laramie Tunsil, who went against Miles on, I think, about 30 snaps of the 36 that Miles played. Uh, you know, when you have a really excellent offensive tackle like that going against him, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult. So a lot of things conspired against him, but I still think that they're, they're, they have to find ways to make sure that Miles is wrecking the game in some way, shape, or form. And they're going to have to really look at it in the offseason and figure out what they can do when teams are, you know, double teaming him, chipping him, which didn't happen all the time in this game. Laramie's good enough that you don't necessarily have to do that all the time. Um, but they have to find ways that he can impact the game even when he can't get to the quarterback or disrupt the quarterback. Um, And maybe one of the things that they're going to have to do, maybe they need to go out and spend big money on, on a big time other pass rusher. You know, maybe they need to do that. Uh, You know, even, even the Texans had, you know, two guys in this particular game on the edges that were very formidable that you really had to worry about that you had to fear. Uh, in Will Anderson and Jonathan Grenard. 
And, you know, the Browns, I think, you know, that might be a place where they want to spend some money in the offseason. You know, maybe somebody else could draw some of that attention away. Maybe on several plays, you got to double that guy or you got to chip that guy. Um, maybe they can work with Miles on batting down more passes or dropping back into coverage. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what else they could do. Um, I, I really don't know what it, what they can do to get him sort of freed up so that he can use every ounce of his talent to impact the game. I personally think that it is at least a mild concern that in the final six, was it seven games of the season, including playoffs, was that seven, that he only had one sack. Yes, it's seven games. One sack in seven games, and he went like nine games without forcing a fumble or ten games. And I just feel like there's something more in Miles that they have to find a way to make sure that they are harnessing it and seizing the moment with him. And if that means bringing in a equivalent of a Trey Hendrickson to have on the other side, remember the years that we kept wanting them? Oh, I want a Trey Hendrickson. <laughs> right? You yes. did. You did. You were very vocal about that. Um, but if you have somebody over on the other side that can get those double-digit sacks for you, you know, then I think Miles is going to be that much better for it. But I do think that there, you know, there's something, there's something about the fact that for the last seven games, he only had one sack. And we kept, we keep getting admonished by the coaches. Sacks don't matter. Sacks don't matter. Stop judging everything on sacks. Okay. Uh, you know, I'll give you that to a degree, but you know, sacks can wreck a game. Okay. You get the ball out of the quarterback's hands on a, a sack fumble and that can change the game. And we've seen Miles do that in games. We've seen him do that to Joe Burrow in games where they don't recover from those kind of plays. So somehow Miles has to be more and do more than what we saw from him in the last seven games of the season. And I think he's going to get NFL Defensive Player of the Year. There was so much momentum for that. And I think he's going to get it. I still think he's going to get it. And part of the reason why I say that is because he got more votes than TJ Watt for first team all pro. They were both starters on the first team all pro team, AP all pro team, but Miles got way more votes. And those are the same people that vote for NFL defensive player of the year. So he's going to get that, but it would have been nice to see him come up really big, especially in this playoff game. Yeah, and, I, and I've come around over the last few years on the idea of pressures versus sacks and this idea that pressures pressures are, you know, look, I've heard enough, you know, Bill Belichick, Nick Saban. I mean, I've heard enough brilliant coaches talk about pressures versus sacks, but I also think sacks are really important too. Like, I still think it's a relevant statistic and I still think it's something that matters. And I do think it's something that can change a game. Um, and, and by the way, these players want sacks too. Like you listen to any edge rusher talk in an honest moment, they don't care about pressures. They want sacks. That's what these guys all want. And I saw a clip. I, I don't know if it was after the Kansas city game or if it was an old clip of Chris Jones, he was getting interviewed and somebody, they were interviewing two people and he had to like split a sack with somebody. And he actually said like in the clip, Oh, did they give this guy my half sack? I was there. That was my sack. Like these guys, Miles Garrett in an, in an honest moment would probably tell you that 14 sacks is not enough that, that he wants, he wants more sacks. So um, I think there's room for both. And I think there's room to talk about the value of pressures and how important they are. Um, and that sometimes sack stats can be misleading, but also to acknowledge that getting a bunch of sacks is really valuable. Well, here's the other thing about that, Dan, we all expected that when they added Delvin Tomlinson in the middle and they added Z and they added Oboe that Miles would have the kind of support that he needed across the line to have a career year in Jim Schwartz's attack minded defense. We have seen Jim Schwartz bring out the sack beast in a lot of guys. I mean, the year that he, um, you know, the years that he went to the Super Bowl and some of his defenses in Philadelphia and elsewhere, 
you know, you had multiple guys getting double digit sacks. And again, it's harder now. Okay. It's harder because you've got more mobile quarterbacks running around the NFL and not letting you sack them. I mean, they have really found a way to kind of neutralize some of these amazing pass rushers. And I, I think that has a lot to do with it as well. Um, but I do think that we all expected that Miles Garrett was going to have career numbers under Jim Schwartz. And if we go back to Jim Schwartz's opening press conference, I think that he even alluded to the fact that, you know, wait till I get my hands on Miles and wait till you guys see what kind of numbers he's going to have with me. I, I, you know, I can't remember exactly how he put it, but I think he sort of put it out there that, you know, 16 was going to bite the dust this year. And 13 had already happened by November 12th. Okay. So he was number one in the NFL with 13 sacks on November 12th against the Pittsburgh Steelers. He then went through a five game sackless streak. And even he alluded to the fact that he wished that he had been able to make more impact plays down the stretch. Now he had guys hanging off of him. He was not getting um, the holding calls that he should have gotten, but a lot of those guys don't. Micah Parsons just got one the other day for the first time in forever. uh, And it goes that way. TJ Watt complains about the same thing, but miles, not only did he not get the sacks in the, in, in the final stretch of the season, but I don't know that he felt that he made the impact that he wanted to make. And we all thought, I would love to go find that quote from Jim Schwartz and I'll see if I can find it. We all thought, and Jim Schwartz thought that he was going to set the Brown sack record and break his own record of 16, which he had in each of the last two seasons this year and for sure make NFL defensive player of the year, which I still think he's going to do. I also think this is something like, this is an area because just to revisit the adding a second pass rusher thing, right. And the way they've approached that has been going and getting rentals. So you go and you sign Jadavion Clowney for one year and you spend money on it, right? Jadavion made like $10 million and you got a really good year out of JD. And then you played the JD game for too long. I'm curious to see what Baltimore does with him after this season. Maybe that'll be a good fit for him. I don't know. That's their problem. Um, and then you go get Zadarius Smith this year, right? And now he's kind of a rental and maybe they bring him back. Maybe they don't, but not having that long-term solution, I think is an issue. And you know, I don't know what kind of money they have to uh, to really do that, but this is where this is where it'd be great if you could, you know, find somebody in the draft, and where maybe not having those first round draft picks that you traded for Deshaun Watson hurts. Now, look, if Deshaun is ever Deshaun again, who cares? But you know, you could have used one of those picks maybe to add a young pass rusher who's cost controlled, or um, without looking without looking at the draft this last year. You know, you make that trade for Elijah Moore with that with your second round pick. Is there a pass rusher there you could have found? It's it's things like that. Like if they could find a guy in the draft, and maybe they were hoping Alex Wright would be that guy, but he's he's not a number two, at least not yet. If you could find a guy in the draft that you could have some cost control, that would be a great way to fix this problem. Find some sort of really good edge rusher who you can put on the other side of Miles, who you've got on a rookie deal for four years, and then you can figure it out after that. Yeah, some, something has to happen. Something's got to give here. And, uh, you know, I don't mean to be like way too hard on him, but, um, you know, I think you need your biggest players to really step up and, and do something in a big game, uh, you know, like the Browns played in the other day. Something, somehow, some way. I don't know how, um, how you do it. But it, it just seems to me that your generational edge rusher, uh, you know, should be able to not necessarily take over and dominate the game, but make a bigger impact than he was able to make in that game. And, you know, going forward and they did things to, you know, they moved him around and they took him off of, uh, you know, like they did last year, they helped try to get him in the favorable matchups and whatnot. Uh, I think there's more to miles than, than, you know, he was able to show, down the stretch from a production standpoint. And I'm sure, like I said, the the Browns coaches would be all over me for, for saying this, that, that I don't understand and I don't get it and whatever. But, you know, I, I don't know. I've seen a lot of good edge rushers over the years 
you know, be able to work through some of those kinds of things and still maintain that super high, high, high level of production. And I would like to see Miles finish strong. I mean, I thought at 13, I thought he was going to set the NFL sack record. He could have at 13 on November 12th. And then he just kind of fell off at least the sack map. And the other part of this too, um, because look, guys, sometimes great players have bad games and in, in big moments. It happens. But when it does happen too, I don't know, there's a part of me that kind of wants to hear a guy just stand up there and say, hey, I wasn't good enough today. Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, that's the other part of it too. Like I, I wasn't good enough. I need to be better. Um, even if maybe in the back of their minds are thinking, you know, other things, stand up there and kind of take ownership of it. Because like, look, like I said, Great players have bad games sometimes, and sometimes it comes at the wrong moment. But I think that's another part of it, too. Um, And Miles has certainly grown as a leader, but that's another step is, hey, you know what? We lost this game. The defense was bad. That's on me. I I need to be better. So sometimes you just want to hear that from a guy, too. Yes, absolutely. Because if you played well and you're up there saying that, we are not going to believe you, okay? This is a smart and savvy uh, you know, fan base and, and all of that. So if, if you're going to stand up there and say that I didn't play well and you did play well, we're not going to buy it. I mean, we're, we're not going to buy that. We're not, we're going to know what you're doing. You are taking and assuming more of the blame than you need to because you're the leader of the football team. So, you know, go ahead and say it. And it's, it's not going to expose something that we didn't see. I mean, everything's out there on film. But yesterday, when we talked to JOK, this is a perfect example of of what you're talking about. Yesterday, when we talked to JOK, we were trying to talk to him about the fact that he was a monster in against the run, making tackles uh, behind the line of scrimmage. And he had he led the team with nine tackles. We all saw it. He was all over the place. And he had four tackles for a loss. But you know what he did after the game? He apologized to his coaches and he apologized to his teammates for his performance. He would not take that praise. He wouldn't do it because he knew that he gave up the 76-yard touchdown, which, as I mentioned before, proved to be the game winner. Didn't know it at the time. Uh, So he did not feel like he played well, even though at first glance it looked like every time you looked up, he was crushing somebody in the backfield, and he was. But he took ownership for giving up that touchdown, and he was mad at himself for that. And he apologized to his teammates and his coaches. And like you said, that's the kind of thing that you want to hear. Yeah. I mean, I'm just looking through his, his transcript from Sunday and, um, you know, he was asked, you know, how do you feel about how you played? I think this might've been you that asked him and he said, not good enough. We didn't win, but there's, there's just a lot of, we, <laughs> there's a lot of, we in this transcript. And one of the things I heard once that, that I thought was really interesting um, I think it was Dan Orlovsky that said it on ESPN. It's always stuck with me. Like when you're a starting quarterback in the NFL, if things go poorly, you say I, if things go great, you say we, mm-hmm. and that's one of those stupid little leadership book things that like, it's silly, but it's also like, that's what you need to do sometimes when, when you're a leader, but Hey, that's a little thing. I don't know how much fans care about that, but there we go. There's our miles Garrett segment. Um, let's get to one more question here though. Um, let's do Manny from Palm Bay, Florida. Hey, Mary Kay, in your opinion, what are the top two positions the Browns must address this off season in order to make progress and go deeper into the playoffs next season? Well, you know, there are a number of areas and we are going to do so many podcasts and so much analysis on this as we move forward. Um, but probably one of the number one things that I would be looking for if I were them would be. A receiver. We don't know exactly what's going to happen with Amari Cooper for next year yet because he has a like 20 some million dollar contract for next year. And Amari's amazing, one of the best receivers that I've ever covered, maybe the best Browns receiver that I've ever covered. But they have to make a decision there on if they want to pay him that kind of money. And if they don't want to pay him that kind of money, is he willing to come back here for an opportunity to? win a Super Bowl with Deshaun Watson uh, at, you know, less than what he's under contract for right now? Or do they restructure it in such a way that they can make it doable? I mean, he's so good for this team that I hope they can keep him. But I would be going out and finding another Pro Bowl caliber receiver. 
if you want to go the distance, you cannot just have one Pro Bowl wide out on your football team. You need two. You need two that have a chance to make the Pro Bowl, or at least, you know, are contending for a Pro Bowl. You know, and, and then you need, I still think, maybe a couple of other really amazing backup receivers. Now, is said Tillman going to grow into that role for you? Rookie said Tillman, big guy, you know, he's got a lot going for him. Uh, Elijah Moore, you know, they need to find, they need to ask themselves, is Elijah everything that um, they hoped he would be? Is he going to be more next year with Deshaun Watson at the helm the whole time? The whole key about Elijah was he had the the quick twitch and all those things that were going to go so well with Deshaun Watson. So I don't think they're going to, you know, throw the towel in on that. I think that they're going to hope that Elijah can uh, realize his full potential with Deshaun. Uh, but I would be going out and finding another really amazing premier receiver. And then as we talked about before is, you know what? You need another double digit sacker. I don't care. I don't care what anybody else says. You need another double digit sacker. You've got to have somebody else that can get home and that can take some of that pressure off miles and, uh, and disrupt the quarterback. You, you got to have another guy. Now, I mean, can Alex Wright step up into that role? He had a sack in four straight games this year. And if you kept that going over a season, you're in the double digits, but, um, but they need to have somebody else that teams really, really fear on that defensive line. Um, so those are a couple, but then, you know what, Dan, there are more. What about running back? What about running back? Not that it's, all that hard to go out and find a really good running back, you can draft a good running back in the third round. And you can draft a good running back in the fourth round, or you can find a running back in free agency. Um, But they have to hedge their bets a little bit against Nick Chubb. I mean, let's just, I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. Everybody, of course, hopes that Nick Chubb is going to come back and be the Nick Chubb that he always was before. But this is another, his second major knee injury. You can never count against, you can never bet against Nick Chubb because he defied all the odds the first time around. But this is now a reconstruction of that reconstructed knee. And, um, you know, he makes a ton of money next year too. So, you know, the hard part is you just don't know until you get into the season how that's going to go. So I think you have to go out and find and make sure that your running game is exactly what you want it to be. Um, yeah, Chubb, think, Chubb, by right? the way, is going to be 28. Um, yeah. Or he just, I'm sorry, he just turned 28 um, on December 27th. So, and when when did he have his surgery? He had his last surgery just in December, I think. Yeah, it he? was it was recent. Yeah, um, the ACL. So now you're looking at like, even if he, I mean, Taki Taki had his, he tore his ACL in December last year and he was back for camp. But still, that's a long, that's a big ask for a running back, I think. Um, it's yeah. like running back is just different than linebacker. You still have to move at linebacker, but running back is different. I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't expect Nick Chubb to be Nick Chubb, even if he's back right away. I think it's going to take time. Yeah, it could take time. I mean, he could end up being Nick Chubb again, but is it going to be in September of 2024? We don't know that. He doesn't know that. And the Browns don't know that. So I think that's an area that they're going to have to look at. I mean, look, they only averaged 2.8 yards running in that wildcard game. And on December 24th, they averaged 1.8 yards against a good run defense. So you get these guys up against a run, good run defense, and they have struggled. So I think that needs to be addressed. Of course, it didn't help that they were without their two starting tackles. We know that. Um, but once they get those guys back, they should be okay. Uh, so I, I would say that those are the key positions that I think they need to, to be looking at. Tackle is a very interesting dilemma, too, by the way. But we can get to that another time. I mm-hmm. Going back to that running back topic, though, and like Andrew Barry does a great job managing the cap and they're going to restructure a bunch of contracts and they're going to free up cap space and they're going to make some splash move or a couple splash moves that it's like, see, that's why you don't have to worry about the cap. And it's true. But also you there is some sacrifice when you have an expensive roster like this. And it comes in the form of, like I mentioned earlier, can you have an Anthony Walker on your roster and a guy that we talked to yesterday who's going to head into free agency again. We'll see, I don't know these. We'll see where he ends up, but like, okay, now can you afford to have a Kareem hunt on your roster? And certainly this wasn't the Kareem hunt we've seen in years past, but he had a real role on this team and he played it very well. And I think it helped this team a lot to have him for those short yardage situations. And he scored nine touchdowns. So 
you know, can you afford to have it's those it's those fringes, right? That's where they're going to have to make some sacrifices. Greg Newsom is going to be interesting this offseason. Um, what do they do there? Do, do they have to trade him or something? Obviously, he's not getting paid yet, but eventually he will. And they have to make a decision on his fifth year option here this this offseason. So mm-hmm. that's what you really have to watch as you look at the cap. It's not so much are they going to find money to make a big move when the new league year starts because they will. But it's on the fringes where you have to make some sacrifices. And that's where you have to be able to draft well. And that's where you have to be able to kind of find those valuable pieces to step in and, and be that next guy up. But um, it's it's going to be very interesting because I, I'm with you on receiver. I think we're all on the same page on receiver. Like this receiving core, as long as Amari Cooper comes back, you still need to add, I think, a solid number two. Because I think we, at least I, I feel good kind of looking at Elijah Moore and saying, okay, I think we kind of know what he is. And that's a, a useful NFL player who's got a role, but he's got to be in the right role. Yeah, he's got to be in the right role. And again, I don't 100% know if we know who he is when he's with Deshaun, because that was very much a Deshaun-driven acquisition. Deshaun needs this kind of guy to do this kind of job. Uh, So, you know, let's see if he unlocks the potential of Elijah Moore. Maybe we do know what Elijah Moore is. I don't know. I don't know if we do or if we don't. Um, but if Deshaun, you know, comes back and is the Deshaun that he was when he was in Houston making three Pro Bowls, then maybe Elijah picks up his game a little bit. But here's the other thing. Deshaun has to speak up, okay? He's been around the game long enough to know what he needs. And if he looks out there now, he's seen enough from the sidelines this year. If he looks out there and sees that he needs another one of those kind of receivers, then he's got to speak up about it. I mean, he didn't really go to bat for the Browns to – sign DeAndre Hopkins, but he could have, and maybe he should have. And this year, I think he's got to do that. I think he's got to step up and say, you know what? We need a couple more guys like that, or we need at least one more guy in that caliber of play. And, uh, you know, if we want to go all the way, that that's the kind of thing that you're going to have to have. Okay. Well, we are into the off season. Uh, it should be interesting. Uh, right now, as we're sitting here, the Bills are just absolutely stomping the Steelers. So unfortunately, it looks like we might have missed out on Joe Flacco going back to Baltimore next week. So a little uh, insult to injury there for Browns fans. And that, look, that would have been fun. It would have been a fun week if it was uh, Joe Flacco going back to Baltimore uh, next Saturday or Sunday. But it is what it is. I uh, can't change that at this point. All those questions today came from our Football Insider subscribers, cleveland.com slash Browns, the blue banner at the top of the page for info on that. We're going to keep the content machine rolling all off season as we always do. Same with this podcast. Just get subscribed on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Find us on Instagram, search Orange and Brown Talk, and of course, find our YouTube channel. Search Cleveland Browns on cleveland.com. Mary Kay, I'll talk to you later. Sounds great.